You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. Good morning, Radiant Church, and again, happy 4th of July weekend. If you're new with us, welcome. My name is Marco. I'm the lead pastor of Radiant Church. If you're watching online, thank you for tuning in. Leave us a comment. Hit that like button. Share this on your news feed. That would be a great service for us today. Well, listen, before we get into our message, last week, if you were with us, I told you that we were making a commitment to financially step up our game in taking care of women and children. And we did that this week. This past Monday, we gave $2,000 to Life Clinic right here in Bay City, Michigan. Yeah. And if you don't know what the Life Clinic is, it is an incredible resource for pregnant women in our area. It gives uh, all kinds of free resources like free parenting classes and free ultrasounds, and so much more. And so we're proud, and we're very excited to partner with them, and we are about life here at Radiant Church. And the church is just going to do what the church has always done throughout history, and that is take care of women and children, lead the way in doing that. And so we're so excited to partner with them and to be a blessing to moms, expecting moms in our city, giving them an alternative, giving them resources to raise their kids. And so today, we are picking things up. We're back in the book of Acts. We got a fresh look, a fresh video bumper for you guys today. We are back in the book of Acts. Now, if you're new with us, or maybe you are like you're a once a monther kind of church person, or you're like a every once every six weeker, maybe, and you only show up once in a great while, listen, don't worry, I'll fill you in. I'll give you some context. The book of Acts is found in the New Testament. And the book of Acts is all about the life um, and the calling of the early church. Now, here's what happens essentially in the book of Acts. There are a group of dis- disciples who travel Mediterranean, who travel through Turkey and even through Europe, and they begin to spread the gospel news, the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, and three days later, he was raised to life. Now, as they spread this message, guess what happens? More and more people believe, and they become disciples or followers of Jesus. And with that, here's what happens. The very first churches are established. It's pretty incredible. So what starts off as this ragtag type of movement with just a few turns out to or spreads all over the world and changes the world literally. This is incredible. Now it is estimated that there are some 2.3 billion people on the planet who practice some type or some form of Christianity. That's mind-blowing. Two Point three billion people. So what started off with Jesus and 12 disciples literally now has become billions of people. These guys literally changed the world. Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Paul and his team travel to Greece, okay? And they're going to travel to three different cities, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Now, most of us are probably a bit more familiar with the city of Athens because that's where Socrates and Plato come out of. In fact, let me just show you a quick map of the region because I want you to get a glimpse of this. Now, you can see Thessalonica on the right and then Berea, and then down towards the bottom is Athens. Now, Paul has actually left Philippi, and he's making his way towards Thessalonica. Now, for Paul, this is actually his second missionary trip, okay? He has with him a guy named Timothy and a guy named 
Silas. Now, Paul's kind of like a father figure to these two young men, and these two guys are like the, the protégés, right? They're the understudies to Paul, and they look up to Paul because he's like a father in the faith to them. Now, Paul used to travel with a guy named Barnabas, but if you remember, Barnabas and him had a real sharp disagreement, so they split ways, and now Paul has Timothy and Silas. And so here's what we're going to see today in today's message to get you prepared, okay? We're going to see this. Paul goes to three different cities, and these three different, three different cities all have a different response to the message of Christ, okay? Three cities, three different messages, or three different responses to the message of Christ. Now, I want to just say this to you today, that these three responses that we see in Thessalonica, in Berea, and in Athens are the same sorts of responses that we see culturally today, okay? We see these types of responses culturally today, even within the church, okay? Even within the church, because uh, unfortunately, so much of progressive secularism has now sort of infiltrated the church, that now when the message is proclaimed within the church, that some Christians are even kicking back, right? They're, they're, they're not very responsive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to take a look at Acts 17, and we're going to look at these three different responses and then what they mean for us today in 2022, all right, 4th of July weekend here at Radiant Church, okay? So let's do this. Let's pray for a moment, and then we're going to open up our Bibles, and we're going to start right in the beginning of Acts chapter 17, verse number one. Now, don't worry. I am going to summarize some of this for you because it's a pretty long chapter and we don't have time to cover every single verse, but I'll summarize it for you to give you a good glimpse of what's happening here in this context, okay? So let's pray for a moment and then we're going to dive in. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for um, who you are, what you're doing today, God. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your spirit that fills our hearts and fills our lives. Lord, would you... Um, as we, as we gather today, Lord, would you soften hardened hearts? Um, God, would you uh, unlock deaf ears? Lord, would you give us a mind that's receptive to your word? Father, we're praying that you'd give us courage to actually obey the word, to live it out in our lives so that we might see our lives completely transformed, Lord. And we want to see that for Bay City as well because we know there are thousands of people who do not know you in our city, God. So, Lord, would you help us be salt and light as we leave these four walls today, God? God, would you draw all men and all children, all men, women, and children to you, Lord? And, um, Lord, if there's someone far from you today, I pray that they might draw near to you. We love you. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, smartphone, dumb phone, you can follow along with us. Acts 17, beginning in verse number one. We're going to have the verses behind me, so you can also follow along there as well. Here's what it says. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, something like that, they came to Thessalonica, some tough words in the Bible, where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was his custom, so Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Okay, let's pause there and let's see what Luke is trying to tell. So Luke says that Paul and his companions are going through um, Thessalonica and they begin to proclaim the message of Christ. Now the good news is this, is that many Jews agree with it. They respond to it. They say yes to it. Many Greeks, they also come to know Jesus, right? It's incredible. But as if, if we were to keep reading, what we discover is this. 
we discover that many more Jews, all right, they are jealous and they become very, 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 very angry, right? And so what they do is they gather up, they gather up some people in um, some, some no, so, um, how do I say this? Some people who want to just cause trouble in the city and they start a riot. There is a great upheaval in the city of Thessalonica. These people are infuriated and they're so angry because they know Paul has been traveling through the Mediterranean. He's been traveling um, through Turkey. And what they see is this. They just see Paul as one who is stirring all types of trouble. And they see the gospel as a direct affront to the way that they're living. Okay? They are claiming that these Christians are defying Caesar's decree and that they're saying that there is another king Okay, there's another king besides Caesar, and his name is Jesus. So how are they responding? They're angry, okay? They're frustrated. Why is it? Why are they angry? But here's what, here's what we should see as we look at Acts 17, the beginning of Acts 17. Often when Christianity intersects with culture, the Christian message is met with great anger, outrage, and frustration. And the reason for that is because much of culture sees the Christian message or the message of Christ as a direct threat to their gods. When I say their gods, I mean small letter G. So when they see a direct threat to their little gods, they become angry. And when you mess with people's gods, guess what happens? They don't like it. Okay? They don't like it. Let me give you some explanation or some illustrations, okay? Let's talk about this for a second. Christianity, okay, the message of Christ is a direct threat to the God of the love of money. So if you're here, right, and you're listening and you love money and your sole aim in life is to get as much money as possible, to become as, as, as wealthy as possible. And then you hear Jesus' message where he says, you know what, life does not consist about the abundance of possessions that you have, right? There's something more to life. When you hear the message of Jesus, it probably makes you angry, right? You don't like it. You don't like it. You're opposed to the way of Christ. The message of Christ, listen, is a direct affront, is threatens the God of the sexual revolution, okay? The message of Christ is a threat to the God of the sexual revolution that says that I can express my sexuality any way that I see fit. Now, if you hear the message of Jesus, of one man and one woman, of sex being only for marriage, guess what? You hear that message, and you're going to be angry. You're not going to like it because it threatens the God of the sexual revolution, okay? Christianity threatens the God of autonomy. Here's what, the, here's what the God of autonomy is. The God of autonomy is this. It's the God who says, I can live my life how I want to because I am my own authority, okay? When you learn that Jesus is Lord and you are not, guess what happens? You get mad. You get angry. You don't like it. And that is, what, and that is what's happening right now in our culture Right now, people are outraged. They're becoming angry, okay? They're becoming angry. And when people's gods are threatened, they respond with anger and outrage. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at the state of our world right now. Okay? We shouldn't be surprised. Now, that's the first response, okay? So, Thessalonica, how do they respond? They're angry. Yeah, they're angry. Okay, let's move on to the next city. This is the city of Berea. Let's look in verse number 10. Here's what it says. As soon as it was night, <clears throat> the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Now, remember, um, Paul has to flee Thessalonica because things are just getting cray-cray there, okay? So it's not safe. So he's got to flee to Berea, okay? On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue because that's what Paul does. Now, the Berean Jews were of, I love what Luke says here, 
They are of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. I like that slight jab to the, piece, to the people in Thessalonica, right? For they received the message with what, church? With great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day. Church, how often did they examine the scriptures? Every day. Praise God. Someone is listening in the house of the Lord today. Amen. Right? Every day to see if what Paul said was what? Was true. Okay? As a result, many of them believed, as did, a, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Okay? So in Berea, what are we seeing? We're seeing a completely different story than what we saw in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, they were angry. Okay? But in Berea, what are they doing? They're like, okay, we believe, we receive it. And then what do they do? Well, they search out the scriptures. Paul finds a group of Jews who are really, really passionate about the Old Testament. And so everything that Paul is saying, they're checking out, right? They're the fact checkers. Fact checkers. They're going in the word of God and they're opening it up and they're saying, okay, is this true or is it not? Okay. Now, I think this goes without saying, but this ought to be a pattern among Christians today. Can I get an amen? Okay, awesome. There should be a diligent study of the scriptures by God's people, not just pastors on staff, not just leaders within the church, but with every believer. There should be a a diligent study of God's word if you want to know and grow in Christ. Right? This is a message for all of us. Not the, we shouldn't have the type of faith that says I'm content by I'm content with hearing it from someone else, but rather a faith that says, no, 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 I've got to look for myself and dig in myself and do the hard work myself to figure out if this is really true or not. Okay? That is the type of faith that we want. Now, let me explain it this way by asking you this question. Will you, church, have a secondhand faith or will you have a firsthand faith? Will you have a secondhand faith or a firsthand faith? Now, let me explain what that means here momentarily for just a few moments. My father-in-law, his name is Joe, and uh, my father-in-law grew up in a very large family Check this out. His mom had 13 kids. All right. This is before the Duggars, y'all. Okay. So uh, 13 kids. Some of you women are passing out. It's okay. It's okay. You're, you're trying to figure out like, how you would handle 13 kids. It is amazing. It's pretty astounding. Now, four of those kids were girls. And so if we do the math, he had eight brothers. Okay. Eight brothers. So you know what Joe got? Here's what Joe got. Joe got secondhand clothing. Come on, someone, right? Joe got clothing that was passed down from brother to brother to brother to brother to brother to brother to brother. Okay, you get the picture, right? Joe didn't have original clothing. Joe didn't have his own clothing. He had clothing that was secondhand clothing. It was passed down to from his brothers, but not his own. Does that make sense? So here's what I'm saying today, church. Some of us in the room have a secondhand faith. Oh, I'm about to preach. Get ready. Some of us in the room have a secondhand faith. Listen, it's been passed down to you by generation after generation, but it's a faith that you still don't own for yourself. Here's what I mean by that. Some of you are in the room, and I'm I'm praising God for that. Some of you are watching on YouTube. You're watching on Facebook. That's really great, and I'm excited about that. But yet, you don't have a faith of your own, right? You've heard the stories from mom or dad. You've heard the stories about about how God provided for your family. You've heard the stories of how God miraculously healed a family member or a friend. You heard how God did amazing things how he was faithful in the marriage of your parents. You've heard those stories. You've even heard the stories of grandmother, of grandfather, telling you in their rocking chair, they're telling telling you how God showed up, right? You're here, and you've even heard Bible stories. You've heard Bible teaching. You've heard theology. You've read theology books. Listen, but the faith is still not your own. Here's why. Here's why I'm saying that. Because you haven't gotten to a point where you've, 
opened up the scriptures yourself and wrestled with God. Right? You're hearing it. You've heard the stories. You heard the preacher man or the preacher lady or whatever it is, right? But you have not yet opened up the word of God for yourself and wrestle with God. Church, can I just tell you this? Until you get to a point in your life where you are so desperate, where you are so hungry for answers, where you are trying to figure out, is this true or not? Can I really bend my life and the life of my family around the teachings of Jesus? I got to know. Until you get to that point and open up the word of God and you dig in, you do the work, right? you study to show yourself approved. Until then, you don't have a faith that's your own. Right? You don't have a faith that's your own. You have what? You have dad's faith. You have mom's faith. And mom's faith is not enough to take you through a storm. It's not enough to take you through depression. It's not enough to take you through tragedy. You need your own faith. And you need to dig in yourself. Come on, someone. I'm full of the Holy Spirit this morning, and I'm preaching. All right? Are you going to have a first-hand faith or a second-hand faith? What do you want? Some of you are content with just going through the motions and never actually asking the questions, the hard questions. And I don't want a church that's just simply content with a second-hand faith. I want a church full of disciples who say, I'm going to wrestle with God. I'm going to open up my word, and I'm going to read this thing. Even when I don't understand it, I'm going to figure this out. Right? That is the first-hand faith. That is what we see the Bereans doing. Wow, I'm getting sweaty up here. Wow. (laughs) Church, let's not live out a second-hand faith, right? Let's be like the Bereans, those who search for ourselves the Scriptures to know and pursue God for a faith of our own, right? So we get to Berea. How do they respond? The Bereans respond with gladness in their heart, right? They receive the message. They're eager. They're eager to, to, to go in the Bible for themselves. They're not content with hearing what grandma said or whoever, whatever it was, or even Paul teaching, and, and, and you should teach or, 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 or treat my messages the same way. Get into Acts. Dig into it for yourself. What am I saying? Is it true or is it not true, Right? Finally, we get to our last city, okay? We've been to Thessalonica, we've been to to Berea, and now we're heading to Athens, okay? So here's what happens. Paul has to flee Berea as well, because here's what happens. The troublemakers in Thessalonica follow him to Berea, okay? So they're about to stir up trouble there as well. They really don't like Paul, okay? So Paul heads to Athens, and that's where he's going to spread the gospel, okay? Paul shows up in Athens, and here's what he sees. He's walking through the streets, and he sees all these idols. And he's thinking to himself, well, the Scripture tells us he is greatly distressed. Why is he greatly distressed? The reason he's greatly distressed is because he sees there's a lot of worship, but no one's worshiping the true God. Does that make sense? There's a lot of worship happening, but no one is worshiping the true God. And there, Paul meets some philosophers. He meets two types of philosophers. There There are Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers. Now, these are the two leading trains of thought in Greek culture of that day. And I want to explain them to you because it's going to... It's going to make sense for our day today, okay? What is an Epicurean? Well, an Epicurean held that pleasure, pleasure, particularly a life that was free from pain and anxiety, was the chief end or the highest good, okay? They were pleasure seekers. Anybody know an Epicurean today, right? A pleasure seeker? Some of you know. Some of you are Epicureans, right? Epicureans were essentially deists. What is a deist? Well, Diaz believes that there is a supreme creator or supreme being, but they don't believe that that supreme being has intervened in the universe. He's just far off, distant, can't really know him, not involved in life. Epicurean philosophy centered on the search for happiness. So they lived by the motto, do whatever makes you happy. 
Epicureans. We've got a lot of Epicureans in our culture today. Do whatever feels good. Do what makes you happy. Okay, Stoics. What about the Stoics? Okay, Stoics believed in living harmoniously with nature. Okay, kind of like a modern-day hippie, okay? Okay, living harmoniously with nature. They believed in using their rational abilities. They believed in science, right? I don't even know why I said that. Yeah. They, they believed in using reason, um, their rationale. They believed on depending on no one else but themselves for their needs. Now, for the Stoics, they believed that God was this world soul. What is a world soul? Well, their theology screamed pantheism, okay? What is pantheism? Well, pantheism is the belief of this. Pantheism is the belief that God does not have an existence distinct from that of the universe. Right? Does that make sense? That God does not have an existence distinct of that of the universe. Here's one way that you can communicate pantheism. All is God. That's pantheism. The tree is God, right? The mountain is God, right? I'm just trying to be one with the universe right now. The universe is telling me pantheism. The universe is your God, right? But the Christian faith is not pantheism. The Christian faith tells us that God and his creation are distinct, right? That God is above all. He's separate. He created it. He created creation, obviously. He made creation. And those two things are distinct from one another, right? So these Stoics were pantheists, okay? So Paul's basically debating with, let's think of it in modern-day terms, He's basically debating with a bunch of people who are from Vegas and a group of professors from UC Berkeley, okay? That's pretty much how you would explain what he's debating with or who he's debating with, sorry. Now, the, eventually, this, these these not philophilers, these philosophers, <laughs> help me, Lord, eventually, these philosophers bring him to the ruling council of that city, and that is known as the... Areopagus, Areopagus. This council controlled the affairs of the city. They were going to hear Paul's message, okay? And they're going to determine, are we going to give Paul freedom to proclaim this message, or are we going to cancel Paul and silence him, right? What are we going to do? This was dependent upon what they thought. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Paul's sermon. It's powerful. So Paul gets up in front of these, you know, the most influential people in Athens, perhaps, the most intelligent people in Athens. He proclaims Christ. Here's what Paul says in his sermon to the Areopagus. Verse number 22, let's begin there. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. You know what's interesting is that word unknown in the Greek is agnostica. It's where we get the word agnostic, unknown God, right? That's essentially what an agnostic is, someone who believes there's a creator or a being, but you can't know him. I can't know him. You can't know him. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Let's keep going. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. There is so much theology in this, you guys. It's rich. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God doesn't need you. Did you know that? Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their, what, lands. Got it, right? God appointed boundaries for lands, Okay. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us, for in him we have, or we live, sorry, and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like a gold or silver, is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Now, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he would judge the world with what? With justice, but the man he has appointed. 
Jesus, of course. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Whew. That is an amazing sermon, by the way, okay? Here's what I want to do. I want to break this down for a few moments, okay? I want to show you four things, theological insights that are really, really, really applicable for us today, okay? Four things about Paul's sermon that I think are, are really, really important for us to know, okay? The first thing is this, number one, okay? Number one is this, you and I were made to worship, okay? You and I were made to worship. You and I were made to worship. That's right, you and I, we were, we were made to worship. Paul is walking through Athens, and what does he see? He sees all these um, idols, right? And he says to him, hey, I perceive you're really religious. You just don't know who you're worshiping, right? So Paul says, essentially, you and I were made for worship. The, the idea is this. Listen, we were created, and it, we have this innate, um, this innate characteristic inside of all of us that we're supposed to give our heart's affections and our mind's attention to someone or something, okay? So the question is not... Um, will we worship? Rather, the question becomes for all of us is, who will you worship and, or what will you worship? Because you're going to worship, right? You might not worship Jesus, but you might worship your car. You might not worship Jesus, but you might worship money. You might not worship Jesus, but you might worship sex, right? You might not worship Jesus, but you'll worship something or someone else, okay? You and I were created for worship. Number two, let me point this out to you. You and I can personally know the God who created the heavens and the earth. You and I, you can know this God. He is not just a God that is far off and distant, okay? We are not simply deists. We are not agnostics, right? We, we believe that there is a God and that you can actually know him. You can know. You can have a relationship with him. In fact, theologians say this. Theologians say that our God is both transcendent, which means far above and beyond us, and he's imminent, but closer to us than our next breath. He's closer, to, he's closer to you in the midst of your life right now. Well, my life is a mess. Well, he's closer to you than you think. He, and if you don't know him today, you can know him. You don't have to wonder. I wonder if I can know God. Man, that would be really cool if I could just know the God of the universe. You don't have to wonder that. You can. You can know him in a very personal way. Number three, every man and woman on the planet is without excuse when it comes to knowing God. Every person on the planet is without excuse. Even that tribe in that far off distant land, you're wondering, well, how are, how's anyone going to get to them to preach the gospel? Number one, someone will get to them. But number two, listen, every person is without excuse. This is what Paul is saying. We know this. He confirms it with Romans chapter one. Paul says from the very beginning that God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. His divine nature, right? His eternal power have all been clearly visible so that man is without excuse. Here's what I mean. All you need to do is go outside and look at the trees and the grass and the sun and the clouds and you can say there must be a God. That's what Paul's saying. Everyone is without excuse. Why? Because creation, I, I, I recited it in Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. So when we look at the sky, it should cause us to say, wow, who, who, who did that? Who put that there? How's that possible, right? It didn't happen by accident. It happened by or from a God who designed it that way, right? Finally, number four is this. Paul says this, there's coming a day where Jesus will judge the world. It's coming. It's on its way. Every day we draw nearer to that day. Did you know that? Jesus is going to judge every person on the planet. That's right. Believer and unbeliever. Okay? Now, if you're a believer, here's what's going to happen. You should not be afraid. Why? Because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Someone say amen. Right? Your, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Listen. And so Jesus is going to judge you based accordingly to what you have done, the good deeds that you have done. And then he's going to reward you according to what you've done. That means every one of us, the scripture says, we're going to get different levels of rewards. We're not all going to get the same rewards, okay? We're not all going to get the same things. A Coptic Christian, a Christian in Egypt who's been martyred and has their head cut off should get a bigger mansion than Pastor Marco, okay? He just should. 
Okay? Now, I might get my head cut off someday because the nation is, you know, anyways. But anyways, but listen, here's the, here's the deal, though, right? We're going to get rewarded based upon the things that we've done in this life. And they will be different, okay? They will be, they will be different. It's not going to be all equal, okay? But if you are an unbeliever, let me just say this. Today, you're an unbeliever, and you're here with us. Um, I'm going to just humbly and... and yeah, I'm going to humbly just say that you should be afraid. You should be afraid. You should, you should be fearful. Absolutely, you should be fearful. Why? Because you're going to be judged for everything you've done in this world, in this lifetime. You're going to be judged for every word that you've said. And you're not going to be judged through the righteousness of Christ, but you're, you're, or through, the, through his righteousness or what he's done for you, rather. Um, or let me, let me back up and say this again, okay? Let me back up and say this again. You're going to be judged... But you're not going to be judged according to what other people have done. That's the way most of us think about judgment, right? Well, hey, Jesus, I'm not as bad as he is. He's a pedophile. Or I'm not as bad as he is. He, he's a murderer. He went to prison. I'm not as bad. As, okay, so you got to let me into heaven. That's not the way it's going to work. You're going to be judged, right, in light of the perfect righteousness of Christ. And guess what? The scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So guess what's going to happen? You're going to be in need of a Savior, and you're not going to have one. You need a righteousness that's imputed to you. You need a righteousness that's not of your own. I want to just say this to you. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, I want to call you to Christ this morning. I want to call you to Jesus. You cannot save yourself. Your intelligence cannot save you. Your good works cannot save you. Your church attendance will not save you. Your good behavior will not save you. Jesus Christ, the Lord of all heaven and earth, is the only one that can save you. And so Paul gives these big, these grand theological ideas we were made to worship. We can personally know who God is. Every man and woman is without excuse, no excuses. And number four, listen, there's coming a day. It's drawing nearer, right, where Jesus will judge the world, right? It's appointed. Hebrews tells us it's appointed for a day to come. For man to die and then to be judged, and then the, and then the judgment. Right? That day's coming, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, it's coming. Right? So how does this story end? Let's look at what happens as Paul is preaching this story or preaching this message in Athens. Verse number 32 says this. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. In other words, that means like mock, like mockery. Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So that's a, that's a good thing. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul, and they believed. Great news. Among them was Diosnes, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Okay, so what's happening here? The third response, okay? The third response is this. Some do believe, but others are mocking. Others are sneering. Others are thinking, this is ridiculous. This guy is crazy. This man is talking, just, he's just babbling on and on and on, supposedly about some Messiah that was raised from the dead. This, he is a moron. This, get him out of my sight, right? Many sneered. Many made a mockery of the message of Christ, okay? So what do we have here? We have three cities and three responses. Thessalonica, number one. How do they respond? They're angry. They become angry. Berea, how do they respond? They receive it with gladness, okay? They're eager to search the scriptures. Number three, finally, how do they respond in Athens? Well, some do believe, but many others, what, mock the message of Christ. They sneer at it, okay? They sneer at the message of Christ. So what can we learn from all of this, okay? What can we learn from all of this, okay? Here's what I want to say. The Athenians, okay, Despite all of their intellect, despite all, despite all of their so-called knowledge, made the most foolish decision they could ever make in their lives. And that is what? To reject the message of Christ. They made the most foolish choice they could ever make. And that is to reject the message of Christ. Isn't it interesting that with all of their culture, with all of their learning, with, with all of their art, with all of their philosophy, they still did not know the one true God. 
Isn't it interesting? Don't you find it mind-boggling? Isn't it funny how the most intelligent people in the world can at the same time be the most foolish people in the world? We just turn on the news for crying out loud. My goodness gracious, right? The most intelligent people of the world are the dumbest. I can't tell you what a woman is. You're supposed, you have a law degree from Harvard. Like, what is happening, right? What is happening in our day and age? This is kind of mind-boggling. Proverbs 12, 15 says this, The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. The wise listen to advice. I want to just—I want to just say this to you this morning. You need to be aware that you don't know everything. Right? You don't know everything, right? And that the most foolish and ignorant thing that you can do with your life—I'm just going to say it bluntly—is to reject Christ. That is the most foolish, idiotic thing that you can do in your life. Some of you are offended, and if that's the case, you probably needed to be offended. Okay. Let me say this. If you think you know everything, you probably know nothing at all. If you think you know everything, you probably know nothing at all. Let me say this. If you're here and you're rejecting the wisdom from godly people, right? Not, not to say that, that, that wisdom from godly people is always perfect. It's not. But if you're here and you're rejecting people or rejecting the wisdom from godly people, if you're here and you're rejecting the word of God and what the word of God says, if you're here and you're rejecting the wisdom from the word of God, let me just tell you that that is called pride. And that will lead to your fall. That is called pride. And that will lead to your falling. Let me just say it like this. The throne of the heart of man has a room for only one person. You or Jesus, and you need to decide who that's going to be. Amen. Right. Your heart, the throne of the human heart, has only room for one person. Is it going to be you or is it going to be Jesus? Right? Proverbs 14:12 says this: there's a way that appears to be right, okay? But in the end, it leads to death. It appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Just because it seems to be right in your eyes, just because your friends say that it's right, it doesn't mean that it's right, okay? You could be 100% wrong, okay? If you're rejecting godly wisdom, if you're rejecting the people of God in your life, it's most likely you're wrong. I don't care if it seems right to you. I don't care what your friends say, and they think it, they, that it seems right. It doesn't matter, okay? You may just be completely wrong. As we close today, here's what I want to say. I want to say a few things here as we close, as we wrap up, okay? That today, in our day and age, in our culture, we're still very much confronted with an Epicurean spirit. An Epicurean spirit is the... Those are the pleasure seekers, right? The, the drink, eat, be merry, seek pleasure no matter what I have to do, no matter if it's through sexual relationships, no matter if it's through money, no matter if it's through fame, no matter if it just means living or doing what I deem of whatever feels good to me only. Those are Epicureans, right? Those are Epicureans. But the gospel confronts Epicureanism. The gospel says this, you cannot trust in your feelings. The gospel says this, you cannot trust in your feelings. You cannot even trust in your own heart because the heart is deceitful above all things and the human heart must be redeemed by Jesus Christ. Okay? The gospel says this, that we cannot just trust in what feels good. We must trust in the one who made us and the one who saves us. So the gospel, listen, confronts Epicureanism directly in our culture. 
What about the Stoics, right? The Stoics are just a bit different. Stoicism believes or leans heavily on, 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 on knowledge, on intellect, maybe just on reason. Stoics believe that um, you can only depend on yourself and no one else. But can I say the gospel says this? The gospel tells us that our autonomy got us kicked out of the Garden of Eden in the first place. Okay? Our autonomy was our desire to be our own gods, our desire to be king of our own lives, our desire to be the king of our own lives, our desire to be our own authority. We are not the arbiter of what is good and what is evil. We are not the arbiter of what is true. Only the one who's made, created heavens and the earth is. And it's only when we surrender to this God that we can actually begin to distinguish what is good and what is evil. finally this church listen we live in a world we, and you know this you know this the scripture tells us this we live in a world where where right where what is right is now being called wrong we live in a world where what is wrong is now being called right we live in a world where what is evil is now being called good where what is good is now being called evil. We live in a world where you can choose among 99 genders. We live in a world where you can call or say what your own sexual identity is. We live in a world where we can be the king of our own lives. We live in a world where we are an authority unto ourselves. The culture says that we are God unto ourselves, that we can determine in it of ourselves what is good and what is evil. But we can't do that, right? We can't do that. Let me just say this. That is what the scripture calls the wisdom of the world. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I believe it is there. He says that the wisdom of the world is foolishness in the sight of God. The, fool, the, the wisdom of the world is, is foolishness in the sight of God. I don't care how popular it is. I don't care how trendy it might be. I don't care how compassionate you think it might be. Listen, it's foolishness in the sight of God. It's foolishness. Listen, and I want to I call you back to the ancient paths this morning. If you find yourself on a path that's leading away from the wisdom of God, you be, you're thinking, it's going to be okay. I'll just do it the way I want to do it. I'll live my life the way all of my dysfunctional family lives. Don't follow them. Follow Jesus, right? And I'm going to just say this. The same trap that the Athenians fell into, the worldly wisdom, is the same trap that we see our culture falling into right now before our very own eyes. Right? It's a trap of worldly wisdom. Paul says it's foolishness. I don't care how trendy it is. I don't care how cool you might seem. I don't care how, how, how much you might fit in, Right? You're going to be rejected. You're not going to fit in. Right? We're, we're just not. And we see that more and more and more and more today. The foolishness, the, or the wisdom of this word is foolishness. Uh, foolishness in God's sight. And, and if you're here this morning, I, wanna, I, I simply want to call you back to the ancient past. Call you back, listen, to the wisdom of God. Not the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom of God found in the Word of God. Because the Word of God is authoritative because it's, it's, it's the very God of the universe. Listen, that dictates, that has said what is good and what is evil. And we're to follow Him. And I want to just call you back to that path this morning. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, and when I talked about the day of judgment, you're, you started to get nervous. Listen, you should be nervous. I want to call you to Christ because it's only in Christ that you'll be saved. It's only in Christ that when Jesus judges you, he'll, he'll see what he'll see is not your sin, but he'll see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus, because you're covered in the blood of the Lamb. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your failure. He doesn't see the ways that you've messed up. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been imputed to you. And I, I want you to receive that. If you are a Christian today or you think you're a believer, but listen, you have a secondhand faith today, I want to call you to a firsthand faith today. You've been going through the motions for years and years and years thinking that you're okay. And my guess is that you're not okay. 
you're not okay because Matthew 7 might be true for you. Jesus might look to you and say, listen, listen, you prophesied in my name. You did miracles in my name, but I know you not. I don't know you. And I don't want that to be the case for you. I want to call you to a firsthand faith, a person who diligently studies the scripture to figure out whether it's true or not true. If you're going to bend your life around this thing called the gospel, you better do your own homework. You better figure this out. You better do your own research. You better open up his book and get reading. That's the only way you can know for sure. It's the only way that you can come to know Christ. So today I want to pray with you. God, we love you. Let's every head bowed in here. Let's close our eyes if you wouldn't mind. Lord, if, we, um, if we've been on, on a path that's far from you, God, we, we, yeah, we're attending church, but we're doing things all our own way. Lord, we, we have made ourselves Lord. God, if we're doing that, we repent right now, and we just turn away from that. Lord, we, 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 we turn away from, from wickedness, God. Lord, we turn away from the foolishness, God, the utter foolishness of our world. They call it, the, they call it wisdom, but we know it's foolishness, God. And we turn from that, God, and we instead open ourselves up to the wisdom of God. So, Lord, would you just bring enlightenment and revelation to your church today, God? God, your word says in Romans 1 that every person is without excuse. Every person. There's someone here today, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would not turn away, that they would not harden their hearts, but they would run to the arms of Jesus. God, give us your wisdom. God, help us not to be so intellectual, so smart that we now have become the biggest fools in the world, God. We open our lives and our hearts to you, God. We turn away from the paths that we've been pursuing and we turn to you. Thank you, Lord, that you receive us. You forgive us, God, because of what you've done at the cross of Calvary. Three days later, you were raised to life and you're coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we want to be found in the Lamb's book of life. God, make us a people who diligently search the scriptures, who diligently chase after you. God, cleanse us of our sin. Cleanse us of all iniquity and guilt, shame, God. Make us white as snow, God. Renew a fire and a passion in our hearts this morning. We thank you for it. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Jesus and all of God's people said... Amen. Let's clap our hands this morning.